Sahil, thank you so much for coming here. You're an absolute legend on the Twitterverse. You're <laughs> someone I've I've really admired for a long time. So thank you for joining me here today. I'm happy to be doing it in person, man. I know we did the recording. I forget when that was. I feel like it was uh, early. It was certainly before I had a kid. So it was the earlier part of this year. Um, and it's fun to do podcasts uh, remote, and it's nice, and it's convenient, but there's nothing like the vibe of being in person with people, so I'm, I'm excited to be here. It hits different in person, for sure. So I want to start with, why do you write to begin with? Oh, man. Um, you know, I've always, it, I, I tend to think about these things in terms of, like, what do you get energy from in life in general, right? Like, um, at any point in your life, like, what has felt easy to you? What, what have you gotten energy from? What do you feel like your energy is pulled towards? And for me personally, for a long time, that was baseball and it was sports and it was like athletic achievement and the work that went into it, I got a ton of energy from. And so it never really felt like work. You know, you talk about like, you got to love the process. Like I always loved that. And that was where my energy was channeled for a really long time. And then when that collapsed for me personally and talk about injury and, and, and whatnot, but I was looking for like, what was the thing Hmm. that was going to give me energy and that was going to provide that sort of that pivot and that transition point. And it's really hard. And I think a lot of people struggle with this. Um, That first point in their life when you have the like, you have to have the rebirth. Uh, There's this concept in, it's like an ancient Indian culture, Hinduism, Buddhism, like the wheel of time. Um, basically that life has this series of creation, destruction, rebirth over and over again. Um, and it's more generally in the idea of like you die and then you kind of reborn as something else. But I I think about it a lot in the context of your own life. Mm -hmm. And during the course of your life, you have these periods of creation, destruction, rebirth. And, um, those destruction periods are really, really challenging. They're also really, really formative because that's when you're thinking about and putting in, you know, energy into figuring out what is that rebirth going to look like and what are you going to do? And for me, that first one was baseball kind of, um, you know, being destroyed and trying to find what my rebirth was and writing ended up being the thing that I was called towards. Um, and it started in kind of a weird way where I was just like, I liked reading and I wanted to talk to people about things that I was reading. I found myself in a lot of everyday conversations with real people saying like, Hey, I read this interesting book and it became sort of a, one of my things. Like, you know, I was the reading guy where I'd like talk to people about cool books that I was reading. And so I was like, I'm going to send out to people books that I'm reading, interesting things. And it started as like 10 friends and family. And I was sending this email once a month of like, I think it was called like what I've been reading was what I called it. And I would send out every month, like, here's what I've been reading. And what I found in that process was like, I really enjoyed the process of distilling what I learned from the different books and trying to like storytell around it and put it into a clear and concise way. And I did that to literally like a nobody, you know, in terms of the size, tiny, tiny list of people for like two straight years, every single month I would send out a thing. And I think at its max, it maybe grew to like a thousand people that were getting it. But that was where I discovered, it was right at the beginning of my professional career, right at the end of my baseball career, I discovered this like energy that I was getting from writing and from that process of storytelling and the distillation of ideas and facts. So that was really the genesis for me um, of just finding that I loved that. What gave you the inspiration to start that newsletter? Um, you know, I was like just having a lot of conversations with friends about things I was reading. Hmm. Um, and everyone was like, hey, you know, there's no like systematic way that you're getting us this information. I had, I think I had one friend, this guy, Dean, who was like, look, you're telling me these books like randomly one off when you hit me, but like, just send me an email, like tell me the things you're reading. And so then I can pick and choose from them. And that was kind of what sparked the idea. And I had never like 
I never had, I didn't know what a newsletter was. I frankly didn't know what a blog was. I think I opened like a MailChimp account or something like that at the time to do it, to send it out. And it was free, I think. Um, so it felt like a low commitment. I like, I posted it on LinkedIn maybe saying like, Hey, I'm going to do this thing. And like 300 people signed up or something to get it, like random people that I didn't know. Um, and that, at that point I was like, Oh cool. I'm like famous. 300 people want to, you know, hear what I have to say about different books that I'm reading. And who knew that that would then later become, uh, you know, first off something for me as I continue to grow my own writing, but also, you know, there's people now on Twitter that like have made a career out of talking about things they read. This that guy, Alex, who, you know, Alex and books on Twitter, who like is incredible at basically distilling the same ideas, like what I was talking about all these years ago. So it's, um, you know, it's been pretty cool to see it continue to develop in that way. Well, it's funny you talk about you feeling famous when you had 300 <laughs> subscribers because you also called your dad when you had 5,000 followers on Twitter and you said, Dad, I'm famous. I made it. What was that moment like <laughs> looking back now from how far you've come? I mean, I think I've had various points in my life where I was like convinced I was famous <laughs> and I clearly wasn't. You know, like I, back in my baseball days, I was fine. I was fine at baseball. I wasn't uh, being totally honest and transparent. Like I wasn't some star player. I was like, you know, I was good. I kind of, I feel like I kind of schemed my way to get into Stanford and go play. And I, and I was good and I like made the most of it and pitched, but wasn't your ERA under three though? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I think if you looked at my career stats, I basically had like my freshman year, I didn't throw a whole lot of innings, and I think I had a zero because I just didn't give up a run in, like, six innings, whatever. It's fine. You came into, like, nothing situations and didn't give up a run. Sophomore year, I did pretty well, but, again, like, I think I only threw 10 innings, and I think I had a point nine. Now I'm, like, you know, close the yearbook, Saho. But um, my junior year, I did – I threw a lot, and I did quite well, other than giving up a grand slam on the last outing of the year, which kind of blew up my ERA. Like, I think I had, like, a 2-4, and that took it to, like, a 3.5 or something, so it kind of screwed me. But – Point being, I thought I was famous, um, you know, because you had some fans in the stands and maybe a few people knew who you were in the baseball circuit, and I clearly wasn't. But then the whole Twitter thing started in, I mean, this is like summer 2020, you know, May 2020, I wrote my first thing on Twitter, started having like a little bit of traction with it, you know, 1,000, 2,000 followers. Um, And I just remember having this feeling like I hit 4,000, I think was the number. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I made it. This is it. Because uh, that was, I mean, honestly, at the time, 4,000 followers on Twitter was a lot for anyone. Like, Twitter wasn't this platform where anyone could have a lot of followers. Now, like, you know, there are random people that have tons, including myself. But, like, there are really random people that have a ton of followers now, like 100,000, 200,000 followers that are, like, working at a consulting firm somewhere and just, like, doing something on the side on the weekends because it became a platform that people figured out. Hmm. But in the early days, like, you know, when I was starting to do it, no one was really writing threads yet because I was the first person really doing that. 4,000 felt like a lot. So I called my dad and he was like asking about, you know, if I was continuing to write. I was like, dad, I have, there are 4,000 people that are follow like clicked follow to try to listen to what I'm saying. Like, this is it. You know, I mean, who knows if it'll keep going, but like I'm famous now. There's people that know me. Um, and that, I mean, it's obviously hilarious looking back on it now considering where things have gone. But I mean, I continue to be, pretty blown away by the reach that these things have. It's what continues to inspire me to share is like the reach and the value that like even just one person gets from something that I put out there is remarkable to me and it makes it all worth it for me. Um, Because that, I mean, where, what other point in history could you write something, you know, on your couch on a weekend morning and reach millions of people around the world instantly? It used to be that you had to 
you know, you'd spend a year writing a book, it would go to a printing press, it would get published, you know, maybe it would reach people in your local area, and then slowly things would disseminate globally, and it would take 10, 15 years. Most of these famous people throughout history only became famous after they were dead. And it's like partially because the dissemination of information was so slow before technology. And now it's so fast, it's instant, and I can reach people like that and impact their lives like that. Um, and that to me is like, what a gift that I'm able to do that on a, on a daily and weekly basis. And um, I feel a responsibility as a result of that to kind of continue to share and hopefully continue to cause people to ask questions and think about their priorities in life and, um, you know, be slightly more philosophical about how they think about the world. How do you remain the same person or at least consider the same tone when you go from 4,000 followers to 700,000? Uh, number one thing is that I have a amazing wife who continues to just tell me that I ain't shit. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I absolutely, you know, my wife is incredible. People that uh, follow me on Twitter have probably seen my wife's Twitter and, you know, making fun of me in the comments on things. Um, and that's all like fun and games in our household. But a big part of it is like having people in your life that also ground you so that you're not trying to get carried away with, you know, how high and mighty you think you are. Um, so that's been really important is like, at the end of the day, this is sort of like what I do. It's my inspiration. It's a job, quote unquote, you know, I think it's a crazy cool job and something I love doing on a daily basis, but it is a job and you have to like writing a newsletter eventually feels like a job writing on Twitter. Eventually everything asymptotes towards feeling like a job. And so hopefully it's a job that you like and that you get energy from more than it drains energy. And hopefully, you know, to think about it from a life perspective, there's sort of like macro problems and micro problems as I think about it in life. Macro problems are like, you know, m like, do you have money to feed your family, shelter, things like that? Are you, do you have a partner that um, you really care about, that you learn from, that you grow with? Do you, you know, have a loving family, loving friends? Those are kind of like macro problems in life. Um, and they're really important to solve first. And then you sort of have micro problems, which is like, oh, am I getting energy out of this thing? Or is my boss pissing me off? Or like the little things in life on a daily basis that are kind of causing you stress. The whole goal is to like graduate from macro problems to micro problems, in my view. It's like, you know, at some point in your life, you have macro problems and you work at them and you hopefully can, you know, work your way through them. And hopefully people find their way through those things. Sometimes they don't. Um, but once you do, the whole goal is to like, A, not create macro more problems out of thin air, and then B, just like manage the micro problems. We all have those micro problems, like those micro miseries on a daily basis just exist. They never go away. There's no way to make them go away. Um, but the whole goal is to kind of like graduate from one to the other. And so I think that, you know, in my own life, as I've continued to progress in anything that I've done, it's like, how do you have people in your life that keep you grounded, that make sure you're not changing, you know, that will call you out on your shit if you are changing in some way. And you, my parents are a huge force in my life in that way. And, um, you know, and my parents, they did it with baseball too. Like my mom never understood baseball. She's Indian, you know, grew up in India, was so, to this day, like I crack up when I think of the look on her face when I told her that I got a scholarship to Stanford because she just thought that I was the like, kid that wasn't studying like my mom still wants me to get a PhD she's an Indian mother it's like why not go to medical school why not go for PhD you know my sister was like going off and doing a physics degree in college and so um you know my mom from a baseball perspective was able to ground me always because she just didn't understand it so it wasn't a big deal to her really that I was doing these things um, and that was helpful and, and it always is helpful to like have things in your life that um you know that that are that way things have changed obviously and now like 
you know, I get recognized in public sometimes and my wife's there and it's like, I post a lot of pictures of my kid, which is good and bad. I think it inspires people to be, you know, to, to take parenthood really seriously. The, the flip side of it is that like people recognize me and my kid sometimes and who knows, like, does that become a bad thing in the long term? And I need to think about that. Tim Ferriss has written some awesome things on that. But, um, but yeah, I think just having people in your life that are willing to call you on your shit when you when your head gets a little big is important. I, uh, you've seen, I'm sure you've seen this, the Giannis uh, uh, post game interview where he talks about like thinking about the past and like um, you know what what that's all about and how that's a bad thing. Um, and I think that's really true. It's like when you when you focus on the past and when you think about like puff yourself up, look at all this stuff that I've done, look at how great I am. Um, you always get punched in the face. Like, you always do bad that next game. It happened to me in baseball. If I, like, thought I was hot shit because I had a few good outings, I thought I was really good, I got rocked with so much consistency in my next outing. Like, it was always really bad. Um, and it happens in life, too. Like, as soon as you start to, you know, get high on your own supply and you start thinking, like, oh, look at how I'm going viral, look at how much money I'm making, look whatever. Like, there's always a fall coming after that. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom always told me that pride comes before a fall. It's, like, a famous saying. I think it's really, really true. Um, so anyway, long way of answering your question, but yeah. What's the last macro problem you faced in your life and how did you go about solving it? Um, lacking any sort of, you know, broader purpose and meaning behind what I was doing. And that was, um, you know, look, I was on a, it was a year and a half ago. It was like not that long ago. Um, I, like probably a lot of your listeners, like I was... 29 or 30 years old at the time and um, I had been convinced by society and by myself that chasing financial gain was the end all be all of life Mm. Um, and I had pursued a path that set me up really really well to win that game only to realize that it was causing me to lose all of the other games it was like the definition of the Pyrrhic victory if you know that phrase of like um, the victory that takes such a big toll on the victor that it might as well have been a defeat. Mm. Um, I was like winning one game. I was winning the battle, but losing the war. You know, mm. I was like making more and more money. Things were going well. I was getting promoted. Great. You know, pat yourself on the back. Awesome. But it was robbing me of everything else in my life. It was robbing me of my relationships. It was robbing me of, um, you know, my physical health. I was overweight, stressed, um, my mental health. I wasn't present with people, my relationships with my parents because I lived really far away. So um, that for me was like the last, I mean, that's a, that's a massive macro problem because I, re- I like woke up one morning, I was having panic attacks um, and really not well in a lot of ways. And I woke up one morning and just felt like completely lost. Um, this is like May 2021, so not that long ago. Um, and felt completely lost and didn't really know, uh, how to fix it. Um, and fortunately I have a lot of people in my life who I can talk to and, um, learn from and observe, uh, who I was able to do that with and start to come to, okay, what are the actions I need to be taking in order to change this in order to get on a path that feels more comprehensively wealthy? Um, and I found that, uh, it took a long time maybe not a long time in the grand scheme of things, but, you know, three, six months. Um, But left my job, moved to the East Coast to live closer to family, um, pursued these creative paths that I wasn't sure if they were going to be able to make money, but have figured out that they do and that there's something really valuable there. Um, And sort of just took the leap of saying, if I pursue things that feel more comprehensive, that feel more holistic in my life, that I have energy around, I will find a way and this will work. Uh, And it did. Uh, but that for me, I mean, like 
that was a, that's a real macro problem personally um, that I, that I faced. Uh, so and it's pretty recent. And what would you say to people who don't have the people in their life who they can turn to yeah. or look to find them? <laughs> and uh, how do you no, go look, about finding I mean, them? Uh, we live in a time that is extremely unique in that you have access at the touch of a button to the insights, perspectives, uh, wisdom of everyone in the world. And I mean, people like it's become a meme saying Twitter is a free university. And, you know, all the like people that post those threads saying like, follow these people, it's a free university, whatever. Um, but the reality is it's insane. The people you can reach on, you're a testament to this fact, like the people you've had on this show being, I, I don't know all of your background. I would love to hear it, but like you're, you're hustling, you're out there you might DM a hundred people and maybe you get two responses, but if those two responses are from like some amazing people and you get to interact with them, you get to learn from them, you get to have a conversation like this. Uh, that's incredible that you have access to that. And that is a first time in history that that has ever been the case. I mean, like if our parents wanted to try to hustle that way, they would have had to like send a handwritten letter to find someone's address. Like, I mean, it would have taken forever and it was very difficult. Now you can do it via Twitter, via DMs, um, via email, cold emails. I mean, I've put out content about this. Like here's how to cold email people to make it more successful. And people have used it on me. And then I talked to them and like, it literally works. Um, so I think like the, the, opportunity is not what's lacking the what is lacking is the people that are willing and able to go and capitalize on that opportunity and I, I've always thought that like this is it's personal responsibility right like you can either complain that you don't have opportunity or access to those people or you can go out and make some movement and have a bias for action and go and do those things um, take those actions find that information reach out to people and it doesn't have to be that you go reach out to like Mark Cuban and get access to him right away. Maybe you like climb that ladder a little bit and interact with someone and that person introduces you to someone else and they introduce you to someone else. And all of a sudden you're like getting close to that sphere of having Mark Cuban on your show, which I have no doubt you might someday do uh, because of the way that you operate. But the problem that I always see in young people is like there's basically two types of people. There's people that want to just like point a finger and say that they're not where they want to be because of someone else um, and, you know, some situation. And then there's people that just kind of turn inward and say like, I may not have X, Y, or Z. I wasn't, you know, born in Greenwich, Connecticut, didn't go to the country club growing up. I didn't have access to all these networks. Totally true. And that's really unfair. Like it just is. It's uncontrollable luck. But what you do have control over is what you do with your situation in life. And with technology, you can go do incredible things. You can go reach people. I mean, a kid born on the streets of India today uh, is going to have access to the internet, is going to have access to all these Discord servers, to Twitter, to all of these things um, that really do start to level the opportunity playing field globally. I, I honestly think that by the time my son is grown up, it won't matter. I mean, it may be on the margin a tiny bit, but it, you will have just as much opportunity um, regardless of where you are born in the world and into what circumstance because of what technology is doing today. And I'm an optimist, and I'm sure like that time scale is probably going to be off by 20 years if I had to guess. But, um, but that's an amazing thing that we're experiencing and going through. So, I mean, go out and create movement, like create progress, that bias for action. Um, I will always bet on someone that just keeps showing up. Hmm. Why do you think, even though it seems like technology has been such a force for good, we have so much focus on the negative aspects of it. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. So, I mean, first off, 
a few people have made a whole shitload of money off of technology. Um, in general, those are the people that have created the things that impact billions of people or hundreds of millions of people globally, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg or the Google guys or Elon Musk now, you know, I don't know if he's impacted quite as many people. And so people, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lightning rod. But, um, yeah, these people have captured a whole lot of value um, and without producing the, like, physical stuff, in the exception of Elon Musk, without producing the physical stuff um, that you used to have to produce in order to make that much money, like the Rockefeller age or whatever, like Carnegie and all of the, like, having to do the physical, um, the physical hard work. And I think that bugs people, you know, and you live in a world where, like, I mean, I think about it all the time, right? It's crazy that, like, you go to the Hamptons and there's these houses that are, like, no one's in them. And they have staffs of 30 people, but no one's there. There's just people cleaning it. And yet, you know, I go to India and there's people starving on the streets. And, like, you know, there's private chefs making meals that get thrown out. And then there's people. On, and, that, like, I totally get that. Like, the unfairness when you just break it down to that level um, on a global scale is insane. Um, and so I understand why there's a lot of, like, animosity towards people that have made that much. I do think, for the most part, those people are actually creating a lot of positive change in terms of what they're giving, giving back to try to change things. Um, and I'm a capitalist. And so I believe in the ability to capture value from what you create. I'm never going to like argue for people not being able to make money because of, um, you know, because it's too much. Like I just, I don't agree with that fundamentally. Um, the other side of this whole thing is like data, right? Everyone's freaking out about privacy data, you know, the fact that we are, you know, we're supposed to be the customers of these social media companies, but we're actually the product mm. um, in the form of our data. I personally just, my hot take is I, I don't care. I literally don't care about my data being used, sold. Like they can target better ads to me and it makes me like more curated and personalized experience for, you know, buying whatever I'm going to buy. Like, great, don't care. Um, I'm not doing any shady stuff. If they want to listen, like if my Alexa wants to listen to me and send me toilet paper when it knows that I'm out because it heard me saying like, ah, we're out of toilet paper and it just happens to send to me, don't care. Um, literally, literally don't care. And in general, I think, I don't know, maybe this is generalizing. I think most people don't care about mm. privacy if it makes their experience better. Um, I, and when I say they don't care, what I mean is that they will not pay to have more privacy. Hmm. We might say on the surface that we care about privacy because it feels like a human right to have privacy. But I don't think if you gave someone an option like, hey, pay $10 a month for Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever, to not use your data, pay us $10 a month. I don't think you're getting any. I mean, you get very few. You might get some. You're not getting many. Um, and I know people who are on the other end of the spectrum who would say like, oh, yeah, I use VPNs and I do this. And, I do, and I'm like, man, that's so much effort to just get a worse consumer experience on all these things. Like if Instagram wants to target me with great ads, I'm all for it. I think it's awesome. Um, so I don't know. I, I will be either proven very right or very wrong on my hot take on whether people care about privacy. I just don't think... I think it's like a coastal bubble thing. Mm. I think if you go to like a cocktail party in New York or LA or SF, people are like, oh, but data privacy is a big issue. And, you know, um, I use a VPN and I do all this. And I think if you go to like a normal person, like my parents, um, uh, and ask them about this stuff, I don't, I don't think they care. Yeah. I think that if you look at DuckDuckGo versus Google, I know DuckDuckGo exists, but I don't use what, it. I don't even know what that is. What it, is DuckDuckGo? It's a privacy-free like <laughs> privacy <laughs> search. Oh, it sounds God. like a game where you're like playing a little like tap people on the head. You got to <laughs> run around the circle. That's a real thing? Yeah. Oh, Duck, man. Duck, Duck, I got to talk to Sam Parr about that. This is like Sam Parr is like a big privacy nut. And yeah. he and I go back and forth on this all the time because I just... I, 
again, I'm like, I'm not willing to pay for it, which means that I don't care about it. Like that's mm. in my mind how I always think about like, do people care about these things? Um, you know, the like, do people care about healthy foods? I would argue that now, yes, people care because they're willing to pay more for something that is incrementally healthier. Mm. Um, so now I'm like extending that to this around privacy. It's like, do people care enough to pay more for whatever service they're getting? Like, would you pay $10 for the privacy version of whatever it is? Apple is on the other side of this bet. Like Apple is, um, privacy is like a core staple of their marketing. And, um, you know, that's a big question that I think, um, you know, and, and a big bet that they're making that people really care. And, and you know, people can hem and haul all they want about whether Apple actually takes that stuff seriously or if it's just a marketing thing. Um, but it's, it, I mean, it'll be interesting to see it play out over the next 10 years. Yeah. Also, another thing that technology has given us is access to how everyone's living all at once, which is both a positive and a negative in some situations. How do you think about seeing where everyone is and how that affects the world? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think about this a lot in the context of Instagram. Mm. Um, I had, this is pretty little known. I had an Instagram account back in like, shit, I'm trying to think what years this was. It was probably like 2015 to 17 or 2016, 17. Um, that was like basically like a travel couples Instagram. Like my wife and I had just gotten married and we got all this money from the wedding in the, yeah, there's this thing called a honey fund. You're not married yet, are you? No. Okay. So like when you get married, you got to do one of these things. They're freaking, it's an amazing hack. You get, um, you know, people do the registry and you get all this China, which like I've literally never used all this China that we have. Like, when do you use China? No one hosts like formal dinner parties anymore. It's ridiculous. And people pay all this money to send you formal China. Um, so we had that stuff a little bit, but I was like, oh, there's this cool thing called a honey fund where people can basically give you money to do fun stuff on your honeymoon. Um, and it's awesome. It's like, you know, you can, we were going on this honeymoon to the Maldives and we wanted to do nice stuff and it's super expensive. Honey, it's like you're just spending way more money than you ever would on a vacation as you should because it's like once in a lifetime, but people can give you money for that. The funny thing about a honey fund is like they're not actually buying that dolphin swimming experience that you put on the honey fund that they like clicked into. It's a direct deposit into your bank account of cash. And so we got all this money in the honey fund and basically like we spent 50% of it on the honeymoon and then had all this money that was just like had been given to us that I was like, oh, let's keep going on cool trips. And so we went on like over the series of that year following the wedding, we went on some awesome trips um, and I started taking pictures. It was fun creatively at first and I was posting them on Instagram, grew like, I don't know, maybe like 10,000, 15,000 followers on Instagram. Um, and what I realized during that process was just how fake the lives are that we see of mm. people that are like the big, you know, the big people that we see out there. And, you know, I was like literally I would post a picture of me like in some plunge pool in Thailand while sitting at my desk at like 11 p.m. in the office because I was like grinding away working on some like, you know, some financial model. And yet people would see the thing and be like, oh, my God, so jealous of your life, like goals, whatever, the whole thing. And I realized one morning, I literally woke up and I was like, oh my God, I'm contributing to this like huge problem of seeing people get so jealous at other people's lives when it's literally not real. Mm. I mean, I would see, you know, female friends of mine constantly like jealous or upset or feeling envious of the like bodies or the lives of young women that were on the platform. 
And it's fake. Like, they're editing the pictures. It's, like, Photoshopped, or they're not the place that they are. Or they're, like, you know, I saw the back, the, the, the other side of taking those pictures. You're, like, you're not enjoying the place where you are, the scenery, because you're just taking the picture, and you're thinking about crafting the picture and editing it, and then you're yelling at each other. And it's just, like, man, this is a huge issue that we're idolizing this when... Uh, you know, when the reality is just very, very different. Mm-hmm. Like the whole Instagram versus reality thing is very, very true. And so, you know, on one level, I'm like, I think it, I think stuff like be real where it's like more real time and, and real is a good thing because it, it starts to strip away that like fake life whole thing that creates a lot of envy, a lot of jealousy, um, a lot of comparisons that I don't think are healthy for most people to have to engage in on a daily basis. Mm. How does that experience inform your Twitter presence and how is it different you being on Twitter versus yeah on Instagram? Um, I'm back on Instagram now. Um, although it's all just like, you know, content related to stuff that I talk about on Twitter now, just video form. Um, but Twitter, I mean, I'm trying to, you've seen it over the course of, you know, the two years that I've been on Twitter now. I started writing primarily about finance and it was sort of like, financial explainer things. As I continued to grow, I wanted to write about things that I really cared about, that I was thinking about every day. That's always been my guiding light around this stuff. It's like, if I'm interested in something and I'm excited about it, it's going to come through in the writing. And hopefully there's some other people out there that are interested in it. I'm generally now like, I'm somewhat philosophical, somewhat self-improvement, somewhat productivity. I'm like a bunch of things. I sort of do a whole lot of different things. And it's just broadly like the questions that I'm wrestling with as I progress in life. Um, And it's not me teaching. It's me learning alongside people and sharing that. Um, And so as as I think about that and what that means for what I'm sharing, I hope that what I'm sharing is my own struggle to find purpose, meaning, uh, you know, wealth, quote unquote, in life, um, and take other people along for that journey. Because I think my, my fundamental belief is that the questions that we face in life are the same, regardless of where you're born, how old you are, uh, your ethnicity, your religion, all of it. I think we face the same questions, we just view them through different lenses, and we have different levers to pull based on where we are in life. Like, the questions I'm facing today are the same ones my dad is facing at age 65, 70. He just has different levers to pull. He's at a different, you know, different lenses to look through. Same as, you know, the kid being born in India, same as, you know, the single mother raising two kids. They're all the same questions just viewed through different lenses. And my goal with my writing is can I provide people with a thoughtful set of frameworks to think about those questions through. Not give them the right answers, because I don't have them. I have no fucking clue. Um, But I can give you a different way of thinking about it. I can give you a different way of thinking about the question. I can spark discussion for you to talk about these things with your friends and the people around you, and hopefully lead you to making some positive progress in your life. And that's how I'm thinking about it now is like, I want to be vulnerable. I want to be raw. I want to be real. I want to share things that I'm wrestling with in real time, because I think that's a lot more valuable for people in creating change than me sharing that some perfect life that is just a farce. Mm. Well, one thing that I, when doing research for this, I realized you did was you write so much of what you do in real time, which is crazy to think about that. There's no, I'm sure there is editing that's being done, but it's like, Writing it and it's being posted. Is, would you say that's the case? Yeah, for, I don't write anything in advance that's, anymore. That's wild. Yeah, and yeah, and so what, what that leads to is raw, unfiltered thoughts, which sometimes I bet 
you say to yourself, wait, it's two weeks later. Do I really believe that to that level anymore? Like, has that happened to you? Um, so yeah, a few thoughts here. Um, I used to write things like I would have a content calendar because mm. I thought that was what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I looked at other famous people, I was like, they're planning weeks in advance. They're definitely doing, you know, content calendar. So I should do that. And I'm going to write these threads or my newsletter pieces well in advance. And there's two problems with that. One, um, I think it just becomes too polished and too um, formulaic. And two, my like procrastinate, it, it, like I need some pressure in order to get something done at a high level, a little bit of pressure. Like there's the Yerkes-Dodson law says that um, there's kind of an optimal level of, of pressure to create performance. Like if you look at a curve of pressure and performance, um, it sort of like goes up for a period, your performance rises with some pressure. And then as you get too much pressure, it kind of falls off. And um, I, I think about that a lot because it's true for me. It's like, I need a little bit of pressure, not too much. Cause then I'm like, oh my God, I'm stressed and it's bad, but I need that a little bit. And so the content calendar didn't work for me for that reason. I started, I mean, this is maybe a year ago now, just writing real time. And like, if I'm going to post something on a Saturday morning on Twitter, like I literally wrote it right then and pushed it out. I don't have a single piece. I mean, I'm sitting here right now. I don't have a single piece of content pre-written, like ready to hit send on. Um, my newsletter gets generally written the day before it goes out twice a week. Um, it's just the case for me. Um, yes. Do I have things that change, you know, a week later I'm like, Oh, I was thinking about that totally wrong. Absolutely. And I'll go back and write like, Hey, I was thinking about this totally wrong. Like someone, you know, a lot of times, I'm putting things out because I'm battle testing my own ideas and frameworks, right? It's like, like I said earlier, this is all about the learning process for me. And it's all about um, me learning alongside everyone. And so Twitter is an amazing, you know, I have 700,000 followers now. Like Twitter is an amazing place to battle test these ideas. If I put something out and it's half thought out or there was like an obvious gap in my thinking, it's getting exposed. I mean, there's like no hiding from it at this stage. Um, you know, there's like, uh, what's the what's the law? Cunningham's law um, says that uh, uh, says that the, the the way to get the right answer to something is to post the wrong answer on the internet. Yes. Um, and I joke about that a lot. It's like a funny thing, right? The Cunningham's law, but it's very true. Like if you post something half baked at when you have some scale on these platforms, it gets exposed very quickly. And I think that's a great thing uh, because what it means is that I'm able to battle test this stuff in real time. I'm able to kind of reform it, refine it, push it, mold it in different ways. Um, and hopefully then continue to share on that. Um, and that's happened with a bunch of things I'm doing. I mean, like I'm constantly tweaking and experimenting with my own life and stuff that I'm working on. And so it's fun to me to be able to like share my experiments in real time with people that at least somewhat care about the stuff that I'm we'll doing. We'll go to a more positive situation, which is <laughs> you interacting with Bill Gates, Tim Cook, and Warren Buffett is something that uh, we spoke about previously. And I'm very curious to hear what that was like. And maybe that was a peak moment or one of the most positive experiences of your life. Yeah, that is, uh, yeah, that is definitely a more positive moment of my life. I mean, I um, the situation behind this is I went to... Um, what year is this? 2019, I went to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. Um, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, uh, you know, they throw this, they call it like uh, Woodstock for capitalists every year. Pre-Twitter? This is pre-Twitter. Wow. Yeah, this is pre-Twitter. Um, I had gone, um, I had gone one time before. So in 2018, I went and it's an amazing event. Like I was in finance at the time, right? So for me, I was like, oh, it's an investing conference. It's amazing. There's all these people. And I went and there's so much incredible energy, like the intellectual chemistry in the room. And I sat like in the nosebleeds, right? Top row of the nosebleeds with a close friend of mine. 
and had a blast. So we made a plan to go back the next year. Um, and I had been having a conversation with, with Tim Cook, who, you know, you know, has been kind of a mentor and, and friend and, Berkshire Hathaway is a massive shareholder in Apple. It might be their biggest shareholder. Um, and so Tim was going that year and, you know, we planned to kind of connect there. Um, he was kind enough to um, kind of help provide a pass for the event. And so rather than being in the like, you know, nosebleeds of the thing, I was sort of like down in it, in the, you know, in the weeds. Um, and there was this situation that happened before the show started where like, you know, I had access to kind of going behind the stage. They do it in this massive stadium. And so I was, I was back there and I was alone uh, with this friend of mine. And we, we could have just kind of like gone out to go into our seats where we were going to sit for the actual thing. And there was like 30 minutes before the show. And I just had this feeling that like, this is kind of where the action happens. I didn't know why, but I was like, we're behind the thing. Like, this is going to be where the shit goes down. I didn't know what it was, but that was going to be where it was. Um, and so we're sitting there, and um, I see uh, I see Warren Buffett start, like, walking into this backstage area. And he's, like, this jolly old man, basically. He's, like, happy. He's talking to the security guards and all the people that are back there. And I was like, oh, my God, that's Warren. You know, I'd grown up reading all of his stuff. This is incredible. Um, and then all of a sudden, like, one of the bay doors opens of the back, and these, like, SUVs pull in. I was like, oh, damn. And out walks Bill Gates and Tim Cook out of their, you know, respective SUVs. And they see Warren Buffett. And so then they walk over to him. Um, and now there's, like, this little group, right, that, that's formed. And Tim called me over. And I walked over. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever in my life felt like more of an imposter. Nor do I think I ever will feel like more of an imposter. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was introduced... Um, and how did Tim Cook introduce you? <laughs> he said, it was, it's the funniest thing. He introduced me. So he turned to Bill and he said, Oh, uh, Sahil, Bill, like, have you guys met? And I was like, How would I met? <laughs> you know, this is the most like absurd thing. But it was like a sort of casual way. Um, and my dad, um, you know, in his respect as a professor, has done some work with the Gates Foundation um, on like uh, children's health in the developing world. And so I kind of was able to like mention that. And, um, you know, and then Warren was just kind of like talking about, uh, you know, the event and what he was going to talk about. But I literally stood there like, I couldn't move. I was like almost frozen thinking about how ridiculous this situation looks to anybody that's like out there that's just looking at like these people like who it's you know it's like the old game you play when you're a kid of like which one doesn't fit and <laughs> I couldn't have stuck out like more of a sore thumb standing there. Um, the amazing thing about that moment though for me is like realizing that these are normal people. Um, I always you know growing up you like idolize certain people you idolize these business leaders these athletes. Um, and you imagine them in your mind as like superhuman, their mm. intelligence or their athletic prowess or whatever it is, like in your mind, they are like gods. Um, and standing there in that moment, you're like, oh, it's actually just normal. We're just humans standing around. It just so happens that they have accomplished unbelievably absurd things that I will never do in my life. But they're just guys. <laughs> like they were what just was the guys. network of? What was the net worth in that circle? Oh God, I don't know. I mean, now I don't know. Like Warren, I mean Warren Buffett and Bill Gates combined have to be like two hundred billion dollars or something. And you know, like uh, it, Tim was like a poor guy in that circle, right? He probably has like a billion dollar net worth. He was the poor guy. I mean, I, it is it's absurd to think about you know the success and like the world change that's happened from those guys and mm -hmm. the impact that they've had. But they're just guys. Mm. Um, and that, to me, is like a really empowering thing when you meet people um, in high standings is, generally speaking, um, 
they're nor like they're normal and don't have some like superhuman ability that is so much better than whatever you have. Um, there are exceptions to that rule. There's a few people you'll meet in your life, I'm sure, that are just going to blow you away, and you're like, I never could stand next to them and hope to p- possibly compete. Uh, but for the most part, people are sort of ordinary, and they've achieved incredible things through a combination of like really uncommon resolve, a lot of luck, you know, patience in the in the case of Warren Buffett. I mean, he's just mm. been in the game longer than anybody delivering returns. Um, and has compounded, you know, for 20 years longer than most people when they would have stopped. And that's made him so extraordinarily famous and wealthy. Um, so that for me is like, just from a life takeaway perspective for anyone to take away, um, a crazy, I mean, like once in a lifetime thing, I'm never going to ever have a moment like that in my life mm. again. I probably will never meet those people again in my life. Um, but I mean, just unbelievable uh, in terms of realizing that people are very ordinary at the end of the day. You know, you say that story and it's one of my core beliefs as well, but I notice a part of myself say, nah, that can't be true. Like, no, like Bill Gates is different. Like I've been led to believe through the media and through what I've read about him that he is just built different and that he has a different mind. So like, what do you say to that voice in my head or that person listening who's like, yeah, like you might've felt that, but it's probably incorrect. Yeah. I mean, it, in certain ways, he is, right? He's smarter than me. Like, yeah. Full stop. I mean, all, all three of those guys, smarter than me. Like, I'm sure they have higher IQs than me. Um, they just are. They're smarter than me. I'm better than them at certain things, too. Um, That's a good point. And, like, I, you know, I, I don't know what all of their traits are, but I'm certain that... You um, could play baseball better than yeah, all three of like, them. Yeah, or, like, I don't know, you know... Maybe Bill Gates is a little awkward with people and I'm not as awkward with people. And like, that's a thing that matters at some point. And so clearly he has played. I, I think what separates most of these people is that they have figured out what they, what their unique edge is. Mm. And then they have exploited that unique edge over and over and over and over again throughout a long career. And like, if you broadly break down what makes someone extraordinarily successful, that's what I believe it is. It's like they figure out their unique edge relative to the world and then they basically go double down on that in iterated games over a really long period of time. Mm. Warren Buffett figured out what his was from an investing standpoint. He went and did that for 60 years. Mm. Um, Tim figured out that he was a ruthless operator and he was incredible with supply chains, with inventory management. And he has focused entirely on that as they've thought about building Apple. And he's outsourced the things that he wasn't going to be as good at around like design and you know, the innovation stuff that Steve was so incredible at. He's done that over and over and over again for his entire career and become incredible at it. Bill Gates, you know, exceptional in terms of his, like, his mind around crafting Microsoft and the strategy for it. Now with the Gates Foundation, like, he has unbelievable foresight on what the huge issues are in humanity and an ability to double down over and over and over again around fixing those. That's what makes these people stand out in the long run. It's just that ability to define what that edge is, be self-aware enough to really define it, then play the game that actually allows you to exploit that edge, and then play the game over and over and over again over a really long period of time. Um, you know, like that patient, doing it over a really long period of time is a hard thing to overstate the importance of because most of us would just stop, right? Like, I, I mean, Bill, I, Warren Buffett has $100 billion. At age 60, maybe he had like a few billion and it's just compounded. I would have just stopped. Like, I don't care. I mean, most of us, I think we would, right? Like at 60, we would have had made a lot of money and done well. And then we just stop. And some people continue to be driven by it and want to keep doing it. So they keep going. And when you think about how compounding works, if you just go longer than everyone else and you're doing a thing that you're really good at, 
you're going to be extraordinarily successful. And so that aspect of it is often, I think, under talked about as well. Okay, so that begs the question, what is Sahil Bloom's unique edge? <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, I think, I mean, I think my ability to um, connect with a lot of different types of people is, is unique. Part of that is because I come from a mixed race background. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sort of like a collision of multiple worlds in general as a human being. Like, I, you know, I half brown, half white. I like you know, played baseball, but I was also kind of smart and I didn't know if I was like a jock or if I was a nerd growing up and I've never been able to figure that out. And, uh, my whole life I've sort of kind of strafed different types of groups and buckets. And, um, that has enabled me to connect with a lot of different types of people and hopefully connect deeply with a lot of different types of people. And I think, um, that is something that I am unique at and something that I want to continue to, um, expand upon as I grow is like, connecting with people all around the world and hopefully, you know, bettering their lives. I think, you know, storytelling and distilling insights um, would probably be the other one that would jump out to me, but it's all a work in progress, man. I mean, like I'm 31. You think about when most of these famous people that you think about and read about when they figured out their unique edge, like a lot of them, and this goes to my whole, like, I think the timelines we create for ourselves in life are ridiculous. When I was in my twenties, I was obsessed with like getting Forbes 30 under 30. And I was like, if I don't get that, if I don't get Forbes 30 under 30, I'm a failure. Um, and I get, you know, oh shit, this friend is raising this much money for their startup or this friend made a million dollars last year and, you know, at a hedge fund. And I was constantly like, my mind was just swirling with all these comparisons. Mm. Um, and it made me kind of miserable. Like I was, there was always some external measure of success that I actually had no control over. Um, and I think most of those timelines are like, total arbitrary nonsense. I literally on my 28th birthday, I was driving to the gym early in the morning and I had this thought that ran through my head. I was, I just turned 28 that day and I was like, Oh my God, I'm turning 30 next year. Um, I really got to get going in life. Like I haven't accomplished anything. And then I was like, Oh, Oh wait, wait, I'm turning 29 next year. Um, I'm good. Like, I, you know, like I, I'm good. I've got time to figure it out. And that's so ridiculous. Like, there's no reason why um, you should have that feeling or emotion around it. Because at the end of the day, when you go study the lives of these people that you admire and you ask them, like, what did they do? They're like, well, I, you know, worked for nine years here and then that didn't really work out. So I went, you know, to this other company and that went bankrupt after six years. And then I started this thing that failed. And then I ended up at this company and stayed for 17 years and became CEO. Um and like it, it had been, I mean, they were like 40 by the time they figured out what their edge was and then went and compounded on it for 17 years. Um, and I'm 31. And so I was like, oh, I actually don't, I don't need to have figured out my edge because I'm just getting started on all this stuff um, as we all are, I think. Uh, and the pressure that gets created externally for us to figure that out too early, um, I think is just off. Like if there's one piece of advice that I have for young people, it is to explore early on mm. and then go deep. Um, and that exploration comes from saying yes to things. It's like, say yes to the new opportunities, to the things that take you out of your comfort zone, um, figure out what works, take different jobs, leave, you know, start, try something new, whatever it is. And then, you know, once you're 30 plus, start to think about what works and like what worked for you, what brought you energy, where can you go deeper? It's like, I think Derek Thompson calls it like explore then exploit. Mm -hmm. um, and I like that. I think that's like a great framing for how to think about the early years of your career. Where does the pressure that you talk about actually come from? I wonder if previous generations, I'm thinking about my grandpa, it's like, did he face pressure at a certain point to have his life figured out? 
maybe he did, but was it different or is it a product of today's social media climate? Like what's your take on where pressure comes from? I think that's exactly right. I think it is more driven by technology and by social media. Um, because your awareness of what everyone else is doing is so high now because everyone flexes on it as soon as it happens, right? You get the like LinkedIn update, like so humbled and honored to announce my internship at Goldman Sachs this summer. Like I'm so pleased to accept, you know, they like put the hat on, like it's like signing day or something. Like I'm going to Goldman Sachs, taking my talents to Goldman Sachs. Uh, It's wild. And people like, it's become a thing though. And you know, like kids are doing it, college kids, first job. Like it's just, that's the culture we live in. And so when people get Forbes 30 under 30, it's like, I'm honored and humbled or whatever the like phrase is that everybody's using. Um, you know, so humbled to have raised 30 million for my startup that has no revenue. That's going to go bust like all of those things. Right. Um, and they should be proud of those things. Like, it's not to say that you shouldn't be proud when you go do that. It's awesome. But we're constantly hit with that over Mm. and over and over again. And those are the posts that get the most likes. And so they get pushed to you and you see the ones that aren't even the people, you know, like, I don't even know that guy that just got Forbes 30 under 30 and I'm pissed about it that I didn't get it. Um, and it's just like, it's preying on our own insecurities about our life and it creates insecurities. Um, and it, you know, it compounds those insecurities. And when I think about my own life, like the worst decisions I make in my own life are driven by insecurity. Mm. Um, you know, it's like, that's when you do stupid things. That's when you brag about stuff that you don't need to brag about. It's just like insecurity, fear, um, you know, they create bad decision-making. So it's interesting because I have a slightly different take on this Please. in that when I see positive things that someone else has done, I don't think, wow, screw that guy. He got Goldman Sachs or he got a book deal or he, he got this amount of follow. I think, wow, that's awesome. That shows it's possible. I can mm-hmm. do it too now. And so I've never felt envy from any of that stuff that people put out or look at. Yeah. And I always feel inspired by it. That's so, great. I mean, that you, you are... You are not the norm. I will say that. I don't, I, and I, don't, I wouldn't say I ever felt like, screw that person. Mm. But I always felt it internally. Like, why have I not done that? Why am I like, oh, you know, that person did this. This person did this. Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, why did that person achieve that that I didn't? It was never like, hey, you know, you suck. Why did you do that? It's never right. about that. Never about tearing anyone else down. More just tearing myself down of like, man, I'm not accomplishing anything. I haven't done those things that these other people are doing constantly. Um, Where I does that you, come yeah. from? Um, I think it generally comes from a place of insecurity about your own state. Um, and we're all insecure. Like, And I actually think insecurity is an evolutionary survival trait. It's like you should feel insecure about your state in life because as soon as you don't get insecure, you get eaten. Um, you know, like that's the day when the tiger comes and eats you because you were like real comfortable sitting in your spot that nothing was going to hurt you and then you get eaten. Um, so evolutionarily, I think it makes sense. But in our culture where you're probably not going to get eaten by a lion, um, insecurity, I just think, leads to bad decisions. It leads to like negative thought patterns. It leads to doing short-term things that don't actually make sense. Um, You know, and I still feel, it's not like I've escaped insecurity. I feel like I'm in an incredible place in life, mentally and emotionally and and physically, but I still feel insecure at times. I still feel like an imposter all the time. Um, So you kind of have to just like find what your balance is around these things. But I think you are definitely an aberration and not the norm Hmm. in the fact that um, that makes you feel hope. I, I think it's a great flip. Like when, when people do feel that envy and that jealousy, I think that's a great reframe 
um, that I will start implementing personally of like, oh, okay, that's possible. And, you know, that's something that I can go do rather than feeling the negative side of it. Why do you feel like an imposter? Um, cause I think I am one. <laughs> um, I, I don't think, I don't think I feel like one. I think I literally am one. I mean, I was just, my, my big project that I'm working on right now is a book. And, uh, you know, I was going through books are a fascinating process because you basically write a proposal and you go and pitch it and you go to publishers and you go and talk about what you're going to write about. And like, here's my idea. Here's the vision for it. Here's how I'm going to sell it. You know, your platform and all those things. And then they make bids, like they put in bids on what they're going to pay you like in advance for the, for the book and for the rights to publish it and distribute it. And it's U.S. and then there's an international side and translations. And um, it's a crazy, I mean, it's a fascinating process. The whole time I was going through it, I was like, oh my God, I got to get this done right now because like they're going to figure it out that I'm a, like, that I'm a fraud. Like they're going to figure it. And I, in the back of my mind, I was like, oh my God, they're going to figure out that I'm not a good writer or that like they're going to realize that I'm like, not that smart or that like, I'm not qualified to write a book. Like those thoughts were literally going through my head. And I was telling my wife in real time, like, this feels so crazy to me. Like, is this going to work out? I don't know. And she was like, if you, if you can't write a book, who's going to write a book? Like if you literally aren't qualified to write a book, who the hell is going to write a book? You write a newsletter to 125,000 people twice a week. They read it, they open it, they love it. They reply to you. Like who is qualified to write a book at that point? Um, and that kind of reset me a little bit about it. But my natural inclination was to be total, totally feel like an imposter around this and say, oh, my God, a book. Like, in my mind, it was held in such high esteem. And I just didn't position myself in that way where I could possibly be a person that could do something like that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, like, at every phase of my life, I felt like an imposter, Um and I think I was an imposter. And, I, and part of me always feels like imposter syndrome is kind of a good thing in a lot of cases because it pushes you to, you know, grow in situations. Like, by definition, you are an imposter until you do the thing and then you're not. Like, I am an imposter as an author. Now I'm going to go publish this book and you better damn believe it's going to be a bestseller. And then I'm not an imposter. Now I'm like an author. Now I'm, you know, now I'm legit. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a crazy thing because we all feel it. Right. But you're not, you're not, you don't become an author or you don't become not an imposter when it becomes a bestseller. You become an author and not an imposter when you do the writing of the thing. And it's like, you're hitting on an important nuance there of it, like where you, where you get the validation yeah, from you, your measures and like what the values and the measures around these things. And, um, this is something I think about a lot because, uh, we tend to, establish measures of success that are out of our control and external. Mm -hmm. And that's a really dangerous game to play. I'll give you an example. If you, there's this great story in, um, you know, Mark Manson's book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. In his book, he has this amazing story of uh, this band is getting formed and uh, they kick out the guitarist right at the beginning uh, of the band being formed. They're about to sign a record deal, and they kick out their guitarist, and the guitarist has to, like, hang his head, take a bus all the way across the country from New York to L.A., gets off the bus in L.A., and has resolved that he is going to make it in music, and he's going to prove those guys wrong. And so he keeps kicking off his music career. He starts this band. That band becomes Megadeth, which is one of the most successful metal bands of all time. And yet, that guy is like one of the most unhappy and depressed people and suicidal at times and just really, really depressed. And why? 
it's because that band that he got kicked out of is Metallica, which is the most successful, you know, rock and metal band of all time. And the problem was that this guy, the lead singer of, of Megadeth, had established like his definition of success and what success looked like was attached to Metallica's success. It wasn't within him. It was attached to someone else. And so it didn't matter how good Megadeth, Metallica is like legendary, right? They're going to go down in history. It didn't matter how much success he had with his path because he had attached his definition of success to something else that he couldn't control. And we constantly do things like that. I mean, we say, oh, I'm going to be successful when I make, you know, if I get a million dollar bonus this year. Can't control it. I, like, I can work my hardest. I can do all these things. But if we have a bad year, if the market's down, the market's crashing, like maybe I don't get a bonus. Uh, maybe I get 200,000. Was I a failure because I got 200,000? Um, probably not if I worked my hardest and I put in all the inputs and what I wanted to do. Um, but if I attached a million dollars as the number that meant success, then I, I feel like a failure. I mean, you know, it's just like a common, common thing that um, that we all do and we have an inclination to do. And it's really important to escape it and to push in a different direction where you define success by something you can actually control and internally and define those values and the measures of success, success that way. One thing that I heard about as related to parenting is that you shouldn't give your child credit for being smart. You should give them credit for working hard if they do really well on a test. And I thought that was just an interesting nuance because then that's the thing that they're going to value in the future. Yeah, it's like input, you know, separating inputs from outcomes um, I think is just a really important thing in life in general. Um, in work too, right? Like I can't really control, um, you know, certain outcomes of like being promoted or different things that I don't have control over. And so if I attach my definition of success to what I'm doing internally on a daily basis, how I'm putting in energy, how am I focused, how is my work product, you know, progressing, how am I getting better with the things I'm doing? Um, it's a generally much more fulfilling way to live because you have control over what you're doing and you feel that control on a daily basis. Um, but it's hard, right? Like yeah. at the end of the day, we all have this inclination to focus on things we can't control as success. Because the world tells us that's what we're supposed to want. Like, I'm supposed, you know, we're, we're sitting in Times Square, right? Like, I'm looking out. There's all these consumer things that I'm supposed to want. Like, I'm supposed to want to do all that stuff. I'm supposed to want those clothes or to look like that model or do all these things. Um, and that's external forces just barraging you on a daily basis uh, and telling you that that's the life you're supposed to live and that's the life you don't have. And so you got to do this in order to get there. Uh, and it's generally a really unfulfilling way to live your life. How do you go and start looking more inward? I think you have to find what your personal definition of enough is. Um, I've talked about this recently. I mean, I, I spent 31 years of my life, 30 years of my life, um, constantly wondering what the next thing was, like what more was. Um, whenever I achieved something, it was always like, okay, you know, I got vice president. Now, like, when when part? When am I going to be partner? Like, I want to be partner by this age. Or I made this much this year. I want to make this much next year. Or I, you know, got a house. I want to get, you know, a second house. Or whatever it is. Like, nice car. I want to get the nicer car. And I saw someone in the nicer car. I want to get that. There was always just something else. And what you find with those kind of things is that there's always something else. No matter what. I had a friend who sold his company for a billion dollars recently. Good friend. Um made a whole lot of money, right? Like absurd, absurd amount of money and went on a trip, you know, right after to celebrate and got this like cool yacht that they rented and a bunch of friends. I was like, oh, you, you happy? And, you know, he told me like, 
yes, but we got there and we're getting on the boat and there was this like massive boat next door and my friends were like, oh, I wonder whose who's boat that is. And what you realize is like the metaphor there is like there's always going to be a bigger boat no matter what. You make sell your company for a billion dollars, there's someone over there that sold it for $10 billion and they got more than you. Um, and so that chase, that quest for more really harms your ability to experience and enjoy the beauty of enough. Mm. For me, this has come from having a kid. Um, I very, very quickly, my son was born in May. Um, about a week after we brought him home, um, I was in bed one morning and like brought him into bed and it was, I don't know, five in the morning or something like that. And I was looking at him and, um, you know, I like made a funny face or made some sound and he smiled at me. And in that moment I sat there and I was just like, for the first time in my life, literally for the first time in my life, I really felt like I had enough. And I was like, if this is all I have in life and there's nothing else that ever comes to me and like, I can just have these type of moments every morning, uh, you know, experience this type of happiness, uh, never make another dollar beyond what we currently have, never have more houses, never have more cars, you know, more glamorous vacation, whatever, nothing else comes, but I have this. I'll never want anything more. Hmm. And it was this like really profound feeling. And I wrote about it shortly thereafter. Um, and that has been like a guiding light for me since I have felt so content and happy and fulfilled um, around being a great dad and around having those moments and getting to enjoy those moments and being there for them on a daily basis. I mean, I'll like turn down almost any travel at this point because I just want to be there and mm. experiencing this with him. Um, and that's been a really big shift for me. I'm like, I'm totally out of the like financial rat race that I feel like a lot of my friends are in. I mean, like I have friends who are like, you know, I got to make, you know, I got to sell this company for 30 million or do this. And I, I just, I find myself to myself saying mm. like, why? You know, like, I, I don't, what am I going to do that's going to make me happier than being able to do that? Like, is doing that in a vacation house going to make me happier than just like doing it in my house and my bed? Probably not, to be honest. Um, and so for me, that's like completely reset my definition of what wealth looks like. Um, it's also inspired what I'm going to be writing about in the book and, you know, kind of trying to redefine wealth in a more comprehensive way. Um, it's just become the topic that I'm like obsessed with and wanting other people to find because it's been so fulfilling to me to see that and to experience that, that I want to sort of try to distill and find those frameworks and the questions and trade-offs to understand, um, to have more people around the world feel that same feeling that I feel like I felt in that moment. So why continue to write or to put things out there or continue with, I think you have a venture fund. Why do all of that if you have enough? Well, you have to continue to be like, I, you know, I kind of mean like to stay at my current level, right? <laughs> so I like, I need to continue paying bills because I can't just, you know, do nothing the rest of my life. Um, but for me, I mean, my guiding light now from a work perspective is impacting people. Hmm. Um, I used to be really motivated by money, as I mentioned, in my, you know, prior career. I don't feel that way. I actually feel like I'll make a lot more money by not being motivated by money um, in a weird way. Uh, it's like, you know, what you're looking, it's like the looking paradox or like the paradox of looking like what you're looking for, you rarely find. Um, but I think if I can, I mean, if I can go impact millions of lives, you know, millions of people to have a more positive and comprehensively wealthy existence through my writing, through questions that I encourage them to ask, through discussions that I encourage them to have with people around them, through the book that's going to eventually be released. Um, 
that will be a life well lived to me in terms of, um, you know, what I can do. I used to think I wanted to impact the world on a grand scale by like starting a company or making a ton of money and donating. And now I think, I mean, like if you, you, you ask about unique edge, I think about like, okay, what is my unique edge in terms of my ability to impact people and mm. impact the world? And right now, not like a hundred years from now, you know, hopefully people like a legacy. I don't really believe in that. It's more like, what can I do right now to help people and make people feel better? Um, and this is it for me. It's like encouraging people to have this same journey and these perspectives and start to think and shift their own um, beliefs around what wealth is and their perspectives around it. Um, that very much feels like my life work. And it also feels like a journey that I'm on. And so I can share in real time because it's a journey that I've gone through and am going through as my kid continues to grow up as hopefully God willing, we have more. Um, and I think I can take people on that journey in a unique way that, you know, I'm sort of an end of one on that. Like, I think I can do that mm. in a unique way that no one else in the world can. And I love the, the pun there in that, what can you do about it right now? Right now <laughs> is a, a nice way to frame yeah, it. That is. I like that. That's good. Um, so I, I'd like to talk about some of your writing uh, philosophies and approaches, a few that you've mentioned. Um, so I'd love to dive into them. The 30 for 30 approach is very simple is what you said. So I thought this was such a, a useful mental model for people to think about. That's a light buy-in, but what is 30 for 30? Yeah. So this is, um, this is my go-to framework for trying to get better at anything. Hmm. Um, I call it 30 for 30, call it whatever you want. Uh, the basic idea of this framework is when you want to get better at something, you just need to move. Hmm. And the challenge for a lot of people and for me, which is why I developed this is that we tend to like overhype how hard it is to make progress on something because you know, you look at, say, say I want to get into great, cardio shape I'm in bad shape at the time and I want to get into good cardio shape I'm like oh man like I see all these crazy running workouts online I see Huberman you know tweeting about all this like complicated stuff with different uh science and research and all these people are in good shape and I'm fat or I'm out overweight or I'm not in good shape whatever it's really really challenging for me to then like get my head around how I'm gonna actually get better it's really tough to see so my 30 for 30 approach is an attempt to make it extremely simple. Basically what it is, 30 for 30, it's 30 minutes a day for 30 straight days. And that has been my standard formula for trying to get better at anything. So if you wanna improve your cardiovascular uh, health, run or move or walk or do anything that raises your heart rate for 30 minutes a day for 30 straight days. It's not super complicated, like you can remember that. And literally like put a calendar and just put an X over every day that you do it. Um, what I've found is that 30 days is like a big enough commitment that you're committing to it. Mm. Um, but 30 minutes is small enough that it's not intimidating. You're like, ah, 30 minutes, I can listen to a podcast. You know, I can do something during that period and do it every single day. And it doesn't feel like too big to take on. And yet 30 minutes for 30 straight days is 900 minutes of compounded effort which is enough to create dramatic impact in literally almost anything. And I've now done, every month I'll do it with something. So like did it with cardio, incredible, like incredible results that you can get from doing ju just that. Um, I've done it with writing. Like when I wanted to create a writing habit, write for 30 minutes a day for 30 straight days. Like you are guaranteed to be a better writer by the end of that period. It just will happen. Say you have a big project that you wanna take on and you don't know, it's like, oh my God, intimidating this huge project. 
work on it for 30 minutes a day for 30 straight days, I guarantee you will feel like you move the ball forward on it. It's just like that tiny incremental effort every single day. It's like this whole you know, James Clear thing of like the power of tiny gains. 1% better a day for an entire year is 30, you know, like 38x or something like that is what you can do. And it's just that idea, um, but put onto a month scale of like make a little bit of forward progress every single day and you'd be amazed at the impact they can have after a month. And so like, I just encourage people to try it. It's like anything that you want to get better at. If you want to learn a new language, work on it for 30 minutes a day, for 30 short days, you're going to get much better at it. Uh, whatever, whatever it is. I have this belief that who we are today is just a result of the things we've been doing for the past three months. And 80% of that is just the, the actions and the habits. And when I told that to Kamal Ravikant, he told me, nah, it's actually just one month. And so to think that you could be in a completely different place one month from now just because you did something every day for 30 minutes, it, it's a game changer for making you feel the momentum. I think that's the best part of what you just discussed is like the momentum you'll feel is yeah. extraordinary. I completely agree. I mean, like, and you should, you know, if it's a physical thing, take a picture of yourself at the beginning of it and at the end and you'll see the difference. I yeah. can almost guarantee it. If you change nothing else other than doing that one thing, if it's a mindfulness thing, I mean, I should try to do one where it's like breath work or meditation for 30 days because I'm bad about that. Um, Why are you bad about that? Uh, stillness is not my uh, natural state. Um, I've gotten a lot better about it since I've realized that meditation can make me take many forms. Mm. I used to think, um, I sort of have a little bit of OCD. And so I used to think that meditation meant I had to sit and I had to think about my breath in and out and I had to not move and I had to like shun every thought that came into my mind and I was like very methodical about it it was very much a um there's this idea of like telic versus atelic activities telic activities are like done for a purpose or goal atelic activities are in the absence of a purpose or purpose or goal they're just done for the sake of doing yeah. uh, it's ancient greek idea and I very much made meditation into a telic activity which it's really supposed to be an atelic activity. Um, and for me, it was like, okay, I got to get the like headband that measures my brain waves and I got to sit here for 30 minutes a day. Otherwise, like I didn't meditate. And if any thoughts were coming to my mind, I'd start stressing about it. You'd see the thing like spiking off the charts. That's just how I was around it. Yeah. And so I never was able to build a habit because it was like so hard for me to just um, to do that. What I've realized over time is that meditation can take many different forms. I take multiple walks a day with my son, with no technology. Um, that's a form of meditation for me. Now, mm. I let my thoughts come and go. I breathe. It's like fresh air. Um, that's meditative. Um, now I do the ice bath in the mornings. That's like five minutes of breath work and just you know focusing on the present and experiencing it and breathing. That's a form of meditation for me. So um, it's changed over time, but it's really just like my definition of what meditation looks like needed to change. Mm. So I also want to talk about an additional... Uh, practice you have which relates to this which is the creative boredom challenge yeah five days 30 minutes per day yeah what's that about goes in line with this um we have grown accustomed to hating and uh you know really trying to like remove boredom from our lives mm. uh when we're kids we at least for me, I was used to kind of being bored. Like I would, I didn't have, you know, all the games and toys and social media and technology when I was a kid. So like I would 
go outside and like draw something or like have a book and go sit against a tree and maybe read and maybe just like stare around at animals and trees. And like, I really enjoyed, I thought salamanders were really cool. So I'd go like dig them up in the backyard in this like little Creek. Um, I just like, that was sort of my life. Like in the summers I would just sort of be bored and it was um, super creative and you'd be thinking and like imagining different worlds and all of that. And then as you grow to be an adult and as we've had technology proliferate, boredom became the thing to like eliminate from your life at all costs you couldn't be bored you know anytime you're bored what do you do take out your damn phone and you look at it to try to be unbored i mean i do it right it's like you can't sit on the toilet without having your phone because you're like sitting there and you're like oh, i'm gonna be so bored sitting on the toilet when i go to the bathroom so i'm gonna have my phone with me so that i can like not be bored um you know you're cooking and you're like oh, i can't be bored so i gotta turn on the tv or i gotta watch this thing we've just like grown accustomed to removing at all costs boredom from our lives and, and I think that's a terrible thing for our creativity um, and just for our presence of mind and for our ability to be still and be quiet and just have nothing. Um, Blaise Pascal has this quote that like all, all of man, all of humanity's problems stem from being unable to sit in a room alone. Um, and I think it's really true. And so my creative boredom challenge is basically like, how do we reclaim boredom into our lives? And not just for the sake of being bored, but also to be fully transparent, I think that it makes you more creative and makes you better at everything you do. Um, and so I, it's like, it's towing the line between being telic and atelic to the concept I gave you earlier of like, it's, you know, an atelic activity because there's not really a purpose, but there kind of is, cause it is going to make you better at these things. It's like the paradox of boredom as I think about it. Um, and so basically it's like find ways to force boredom back into your life and force the issue to grow accustomed to it again of doing nothing. And you know, my like original way of this was go on a walk without your phone, without your headphones. Don't feel the need to listen to a podcast on two X speed. Like I see all these, you know, people on Twitter being like, I listen to audiobooks on four X speed. I'm like, Oh, you're great. Like I can't hear you sound like damn chipmunks when you listen to things on that speed. Like what value did you get out of that? I don't know. Maybe it changed your life, but I doubt it. Um, and what's the need? Why do you need to move so fast? Like, why not just listen to things slowly and, or just listen to what's around you. And so like my whole thing is going to walk once a day with like 30 minutes, no phone on you or like have your phone, but put it in your pocket. It's really hard to resist if you have it on you though, to be honest. Um, just don't, and bring nothing like bring a pocket notebook, maybe in a pen. Like if you have some idea and you want to sketch it down, um, but just go on a walk and like, don't talk to anyone. Don't have your phone. Don't have headphones. Um, no podcasts, no audiobooks. just like embrace the nothingness of it. And the first time you'll feel like you might be going crazy from just like the silence of it if you're not used to it. Um, but what you find over time is that it becomes like the best part of your day and also the thing that unlocks you more than anything else. Um, it's like a space where your attention residue is able to dissipate. So you're able to transition to whatever it is that comes after. You end up having the best ideas during those periods because that's when your like thoughts and ideas start to like mingle. Um, I've heard someone refer to it as idea sex, which I find hilarious um, as a concept. But like, you know, the, the time when like your ideas in your mind are able to roam free and they're not focused on a specific task. And so they just kind of mingle and you're thinking things and maybe half of them don't make sense, but some of them do. Um, and I just think it's, it's been one of the best things for me personally in terms of resetting and then also, you know, professionally, just like thinking through things clearly, having a new creative perspective on something. It, it really, really goes a long way. How much of this do you think is similar to people thinking that the radio was going to ruin kids' lives? There was a, a pushback in that time and a pushback when any new technology arises is life was better before. Yeah. 
And I do completely agree with what you're saying in that the times in which I'm most creative are when I'm untapped from that. But I also see a movement of people who are kind of just tearing down the newest form of technology as well. So how do you think about that? It's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, we talked about it earlier. I think yeah. technology is amazing for a lot of reasons in leveling the playing field globally and allowing uh, you know, a young person to have opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. The other edge of it is these problems. It's mm -hmm. you know that we constantly need to feel connected, that we constantly feel everything is urgent, that we all feel so busy because like my email's right there and I'm constantly getting emails, the notifications. Um, and I, what I always think with these things is that it's neither all the good and it's neither all the bad and it's not all the bad either. And so you need to, um, you need to find what your balance is. And personally, I think the balance is like finding those short escapes because I don't think you can separate yourself from technology. You're like a pariah. You know, if I give up my iPhone or if I don't, if I decide I'm not going to be on social media or not respond to email, what am I going to get done? And the way it's impossible to live in the modern world that way. And so I might as well go live in a cabin underground. Um, but we need to force ways to to move out of it. I, I mean, I wrote about it recently in the context of friction, which is another example of this. Like everything in the world has trended towards reducing friction. And in a world where everyone is moving towards removing all friction from our life, the people that are willing to embrace a little bit of friction mm. are going to be the ones that stand out and rise to a higher level uh, because friction creates growth. It's just, it's just a fact. Like when you're willing to embrace friction, when you can go through friction, that is how you grow and that's how you progress and how you create incredible things. Those are the moments we remember. That's the substance. And so in a world where they're trying to strip every ounce of friction out of our lives, if you're willing to even endure a little bit of friction on a daily basis and like do the one hard thing, move towards the obstacle, um, it's going to be a differentiator in the long run. Yeah, it's like, where are most people avoiding? What are the things that most people are avoiding? For now, it's it's meditation or being still or doing a difficult workout. Those are the things that people are avoiding. So inherently, there's something to leaning into those things. Yeah, I mean, I do the ice bath every morning, right? I've been tweeting about that. I'm obsessed, by the way. I like. I think um, I used to do this stuff back in my baseball days. I had this buddy, Chad Rogers, um, who I used to do like stupid Navy SEAL type training with. We used to go like in frozen rivers and do all this crazy stuff. And so I kind of grew to love that like pain of struggling through something. Hadn't done it for many years and became really softened to it. Uh, but then I got this cold plunge. It's actually called the cold plunge. And, um, you know, it's 39 degree water. And I go in it first thing in the morning when I wake up. So now... In the summer, it was sort of pleasant because, like, I'd go in and it would be, like, sun shining, 90 degrees out, sun on your face, like, kind of glorious. And you're getting into cold water and you sort of can embrace it. Now it's, like, this morning I went in, it was, like, 530. It's, like, 55 degrees out. The water's 39. Miserable, real miserable. Um, but my perspective is, like, if you can do that one really hard thing every single morning for five minutes, like it's not that it's not that much, and you're not going to die. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to convince yourself to get in it. Um, how much easier is everything else that you face? And when you face that one challenge in life, but you know that you're capable of stilling yourself, of calming your breathing when you're going through that challenging thing, um, how much more powerful will you be when those life's challenges come to you? Like it, it's there's clearly scientific you know, research that proves the health benefits of it. Huberman has done some episodes on this and like, you know, the impact on your metabolism and on dopamine and all these things. But it's also like training for life because life is going to hit you over the side of your head with some crazy shit at some point. And 
when you know that you can calm yourself in those moments and that you can be still um, and that you can center yourself when you have that fight or flight response that you have every time you get into that water, there's something really powerful about that. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And kind of on that topic of just the shortness of life is a topic you've written a lot about. And my friend Zach Pagrab talks often about the idea that the best content in the world is just telling people that they're going to die. And it's like going in that ice bath is a slight reminder of telling you you're going to die and to appreciate the moments when you're not in the ice bath. But I know you've written recently about the shortness of life. And I know it played a big role in you moving back to New York to be closer to your parents. What has that been like in terms of remembering or reminding yourself often that you're going to die? Yeah, there's this whole concept that became really trendy, memento mori, which you've probably seen. It's like the Stoic um, is started in ancient Rome. They would basically like, you know, the military parades, the like military hero would be on this chariot and they'd have throngs of crowds celebrating them. And it was easy for them to feel like a god and feel immortal. And they'd have this person literally whose job it was behind them in the chariot to just whisper in their ear, like, remember, you're going to die. Memento mori. Remember your mortality. Um, and it's become a kind of new modern thing where people will like, it's a calendar that's got 52 boxes across and 80 boxes down to measure like 52 weeks in a year, 80 years of your life. And you fill in the box each week that passes. So you can like really see how much life you've lived and how much you likely have left if you live to 80. Um, and that I think kind of captures this sentiment. It's like every week that passes is a week that is gone. Our time is finite. And yet we don't think about that until far too late. Um, I think about it a lot in the context of people around us. Like, you know, I've talked about it a lot recently with my parents. And one of the reasons we moved back to the East Coast, the biggest reason was a conversation I had with a friend who pointed out that my parents were in their mid-60s and that I was seeing them once a year. And he said, okay, so you're going to see them about 15 more times before they die. And I remember it feeling like I got punched in the fucking gut. Mm hearing that um i still i mean i still feel it so much like from that conversation even just repeating it um and we the next morning i told my wife i wanted to sell her house and we sold her house and moved back to the east coast and now i see my parents all the time uh and they're a huge part of my son's life and my wife's parents are a huge part of my son's life and it's the best decision we'll ever make i will never regret that it could have like derailed my career um could have had a lot of negative impacts but i will never regret those moments that i get to spend with them um, and things that we get to do as they're getting older. Um, and I just think those are things we don't think about enough. It's mm. like the number of times you're going to see your parents again. It's the number of times you're going to go on that trip with your guy friends from college. It just gets harder. Like as you get older, people have responsibilities. They move around. You don't schedule those things. The number of times you're going to go do your favorite, you know, activity again. Um, the number of times you're going to get to like wake up and enjoy that moment in bed with a kid who thinks you are their entire world before they grow up and before they've kind of moved on and had friends and girlfriends or whatever else in life. Um, and we fail to think about those things until they're gone is the standard. We just like, we don't think about it. I'm going to put it out of my mind. I don't want to think about time It's depressing. And so you put it out of your mind and then you wake up one day and it's gone. And then you think about it and then you say, Oh man, I wish I hadn't done that. And so one of my goals personally is to embrace that passage of time and experience it in real time it's also to share and encourage other people to do the same uh, because it is 
probably the most powerful thing you can do is start to be aware of the time that is passing and start taking advantage and treasuring your time for what it is. I wrote a piece on that earlier this week and the responses I got are incredible. I mean, I like got a response from a guy that said he walked out of class when he read it and called his mom. And like, what, what more could I want in terms of the value that my work is creating than things like that? Mm. People that are like, booking a trip with their family because they read this piece or just going to see friends that they otherwise wouldn't have seen. Um, and when I think about, you know, the value that I might be able to create in a little, in my work, it's like, what more could I want than, mm-hmm. than that, than causing people to take actions like that, to make their life slightly better, to think about time a little bit more, a little bit differently. Um, that to me feels like the most incredible use of this platform that I've stumbled into um, on a grand scale. How do you go about teaching your son that? He's not old enough yet. Um, I, don't, I think the only way to teach children is to embody the things that you want you want them to learn. I think about my own life, like things my parents told me never sunk in. They could tell me anything. They told me to study. They told me to you know work hard, whatever. None of that sinks in. What sinks in is seeing the people you admire doing those things, embodying those principles. And I think the only thing that I can hope to do with my son is to embody the things that I want him to live by. I mean, I talk about this concept of being a darkest hour friend, being a friend that's there for people when times are bad, uh, for your closest friends. And I don't think I can teach anyone that. I think he can see me do that for the people that I care about in my life in order to learn it. Um, It's the same with all of this stuff, with respect for time, with being there with him. I mean, my dad... uh, is one of the hardest working people in the world, I mean, in the world that I know. Um, not in a money-making sense. He was an academic, and so he worked, you know, in universities and in an academic track his whole life. Um, but he worked, I mean, an ungodly number of hours, and yet he coached all my Little League teams, and he was home for dinner every single night. Um, and he must have stayed up all night after that to have the kind of prolific output that he had as a, you know, as a researcher and as a writer. Um, but I never saw that. Like, I never felt like he was missing from my life because of that energy and work that he was putting in. I knew that he was working hard. And so I always established in me as a value, but it didn't sacrifice being there with me and, you know, being able to kind of like experience life with me. And that's how I want to be. I want to be able to embody principles around hard work, around enthusiasm, you know, a great attitude. Um, but I never want that to detract from my ability to be present for all of these moments. Mm. Well, Sahil, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm grateful you spent all this time with me today. Is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with, a challenge to leave the audience oh. with? To We've spoken about a couple, yeah. but maybe a, a third will uh, help inspire people to live a better life. No, I mean, I think the time one is, is what I would leave people with. It's so, like, think about how much time you have left, how much time the people around you have left, and take a little bit of action on it. Call your parents that one extra time. Plan a trip with your friends that you wouldn't have otherwise done. Like, do that one thing that just acknowledges how precious your time is. Um, and if everyone does that, I think you start making a dent in, uh, in a more positive move in the world. You have tremendous skill as a storyteller, as a writer, and just as a person. I'm incredibly grateful to have spent some time with you today. And uh, I'm really excited to see what the future has in store for you and follow along your journey. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. Awesome.